purposes that God has fashioned for us, both in how he's gifted us, but also what he's called us to, the proclamation of the gospel and the living out of, of that in, in, in the world. And so we're going to be talking about that for the next few days, but today I wanted to talk about being revived in God. You know, I grew up in and around the church, sometimes in the church, sometimes not. But whenever you said the word revive or revival, you have a certain thing or an impression that comes to your mind. When I think about the term revived, literally, that term revived um, uh, um, brings the image of something that was dead or lifeless coming back to life. You know, like maybe in the medical field, if if someone um, is either has drowned, you you give them a C, uh, CPR to, to to resuscitate them back from the drowning, or maybe their heart is stopped, etc. There's something that has has ceased to operate or ceased to live that comes back to life. And in the church, growing up, we would call. Um, once a year, sometimes Revival Week. I always thought that was interesting. We are going to plan when revival happens for you. But what we were saying is, God, would you speak to us as a, a corporate people? Would you speak to me individually? And would you do something in me that would awaken something that is dead? Awaken something that is dead. Or another way of putting it is, would you um, stir up life again in me? actually like that thought better. God, I want to I have more of your life. So we see throughout history, we see different, uh, different moves of reviving. So sometimes reviving, bringing something that is dead to life, is seen among masses of people that don't even know about Jesus. Where the gospel or the good news of Jesus comes for the first time, or it comes upon masses of people. Even in our own country, um, the first great awakening, the second great awakening. There was a prayer revival that happened in the 1800s. Um, there are moves of God where some of the church comes back to life, but also thousands upon thousands of people who have never heard about Jesus respond to the gospel. In Wales, the, the Welsh revival uh, in the 1800s, it talks about soccer stadiums that were once filled with people rooting on their soccer team were filled with people coming to know Jesus. Bars that were um, once filled with people getting drunk and going home late at night were now filled with Bible studies. Revival. Revival. We also think about revival in, in the context of a continual being, continually being revived. Uh, an, act, an action verb. I want to live or live in revival. I want to be revived continually. The great um, Moravian movement that sent missionaries throughout the world, um, and one of the things that they are known for is that when they sent uh, a missionary out to another country, they sent them with a coffin because they were going there for life to proclaim Jesus. But that, that evangelistic missionary movement that lasted over a hundred years was sustained by a continual praying 24-7 um, by the church, continually in the presence of the Lord, praying and calling out to God and being continually revived in the Lord. So we want to be a church that comes alive to God. Amen? We want to be a church that is seeing people who maybe for the first time have never heard about Jesus or are on a journey with Jesus, awakening to their salvation that they find in God. Or maybe we want to see us as a people who the majority of us have a faith in Jesus, 
stirred afresh on a continual basis, uh, d- things that have died in us being brought back to life, and all of us yearning for a continual reviving in God. I want to look at three different people in Scripture as we think about these three different aspects of revival. And the first person I want to look at as we think about revival is a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, um, it says in John chapter 3, was a Pharisee who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he was a religious man. He was a God-fearing man, we find out as we follow his story. He was a seeker. He was respected. Um, And it says in verse 2, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs or the miracles you are doing if God were not with him. Verse 3, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Verse 4, how can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. We see Nicodemus here as a, stu- uh, as a, as a, a knowledgeable person of Scripture. He's a leader. He's a teacher in the community. And he has seen something in Jesus that puts all of his knowledge in question. For the first time, maybe, he has seen something in someone who has shaken the core of his belief structure, who has challenged him to think in a way that is different from how he was raised, has challenged him to think about his own life so much so that he was willing to put his own life in danger to come and ask questions. You notice in the, in the scripture, it says it came to him, he came to Jesus at night. Why do people come to people at night? Especially in this culture where there's not light bulbs, there's not street lights on, there's not people partying until the wee hours of the night. When night happened, it was dark. That's when people were at home and in bed. And that's when bad things happened. If you were out at night, there was trouble. But Nicodemus was not only willing to go out into trouble, go out into danger, but he was also kind of slinking maybe in the night. What do you think? Maybe he's trying, he's not sure if he wants to be seen. So there's a courage and there's a fear all at the same time, right? So he goes out at night, but he's also hiding in the shadows of night because he has questions. He's got a little bit of courage and a little bit of fear, but just enough courage to get into the presence of this man who confounds him who he knows is a miracle maker, to ask him what his life is all about. I wonder if there's some people in the room today that are like Nicodemus. I don't know. I don't, I don't know many of you. But I wonder if there's some people in the room today that have enough fear of God in you that you're here. You wouldn't be here if there wasn't some kind of inquiry in your spirit about God. I wonder if you're on a journey, like Nicodemus was, of trying to reconcile what you already believe, maybe what you're already preaching, maybe what you're already teaching, and yet it comes in contradiction with 
this Jesus that you've heard about, maybe from a friend who invited you, or maybe from a TV show, or maybe you started reading a Bible that was given to you, or I don't know what your journey is. But you're on a journey, a quest, and you are part courageous and part a little bit fearful. And you enter into the presence of God and you ask the question and Jesus gives you the answer that you need to be born again. We live in a culture more and more so that causes us to not only question rightly or wrongly of God, but also causes us to walk in some kind of fear and intimidation of even asking the questions of Jesus, doesn't it? My daughter, um, who's uh, at a university here in town, um, was speaking with a young man just um, this week, and um, she was telling him about her gap year where she took off a year to learn more about Jesus and go tell people about Jesus in, the, in, in another country. And he looked at her, she said, he looked at me like I was an alien. He was from Germany, he was from another country, and he looked at her and he said, I don't think I've ever met anybody like you. <laughs> and his, his response was like, what, why? Why would you, what? You did what? You, he was confounded. But he was also somewhat dismissive. Almost to say, well, you know, no, nobody in Germany, you know, a more civilized land. Nobody in Ger- there's no there's nobody in Germany like you. Well, we know that's not true, right? We know that's not true. We know that there's thousands upon thousands in Germany and all in every country, most countries, of people, young people who are radically pursuing Jesus. But it 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 hit him square between the eyes, and he didn't know what to do with it. We live in a culture that doesn't know what to do with Jesus, and yet we are asking questions. When we are lost, by the way, if we recognize that we're lost or we don't have all the answers, that's the best time to ask questions, isn't it? All of you who live with spouses who don't pull over when they're lost in the car, say amen. That is the best time, honey, to ask questions when we're lost. For some of us, that's not when we ask questions. That's when we dig in. I'm going to find my way. <laughs> Haven't we seen this before? I don't think so. I think I recognize that. No, we don't. No. Uh, when are we going to stop? Well, I got dizzy. I'm, I'm older. When are we going to st- Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Feel better. Thank you. Um, When are we going to acknowledge one when we're lost? When what we have fashioned together as our belief system or worldview or way of living is not producing within us the life that we desire, nor is it getting us closer to the ultimate truth or the truth giver who is God. When are we going to acknowledge, you know what, I don't have it all together, I'm lost God, could you answer my questions? He's not afraid of your questions. Well, I've got some doozies for God. Fire away. He'll answer you. He might not answer you the way that you want him to answer because oftentimes we fire our questions away with the answer already in hand, don't we? So if he gives us the answer back that we want, God's good. But if he gives us the answer back that we don't want to hear but that is truth and it cuts us to the heart, what then do we do? That's what was happening with Nicodemus. 
all of a sudden, Jesus zeroed in on this, this leading, teaching, respected elder of the community who is slinking through the darkness of night to have a question and answer time with the living God. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, there's only one answer to your question. You need to be born again. What? How does that happen? And he goes on and explains it. He says, you, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. There. There is a earthly realm and there is a spiritual realm. Nicodemus, you should know this. That it's not just about this earthly world that we're living in, but that there is a God and there is a spirit. And we've got to be born of the spirit, not just born into this world. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's prophesying his death. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Verse 16. For God so loved the world. This is the one you know. That he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. But have eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But to save the world through him. Nicodemus had questions. And Jesus had an answer. Listen, Jesus had an answer. He had an answer that addressed Nicodemus's intellectual questions, but he had a deeper answer, which was himself. Jesus was the answer. Nicodemus, meet your answer. I am he. Believe in me. Believe. Nicodemus was at a crossroads of intellectual um, wrestling and, and faith wrestling. And he had to make a decision of faith. He had to believe. He had to believe in the Father who sent the Son. And he had to believe in Jesus. And who Jesus was. And ultimately, what Jesus was going to do. Nicodemus came in darkness. Asking questions, seeking answers, partially afraid, I'm sure, not sure he's wanting to be identified with Christ, but desperate for something more than what he possesses. If you're in this room and that's you, I would encourage you to start asking questions of God and listening to his answer. And it might be that he's already answering you today and you hear him say, just believe. Believe in me. And I will set you free. So what happened to Nicodemus? We don't see him getting down on his knee in that, that conversation. Um, but we do know that um, in John chapter 7, 
that when um, Jesus is um, in front of the Pharisees, it says, finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked, why, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke this, the way this man does, the guard, guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Has any of the rulers or, a, or of the Pharisees believed in him? Have any of us believed in him? No. Of course, they didn't know that Nicodemus was maybe either already believing or was starting to believe. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? They, they use intimidation. Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So we see Nicodemus now coming out of the darkness into the light and he's starting to defend Jesus. He's starting to defend Jesus by asking questions of those who want to intimidate him, want to keep, them, keep him in their fold. Want to keep him believing what they're believing. How many of you know that it's hard to break out of the group when everybody in the group believes one way because they want you to believe so that they can feel better about themselves? Right? We know how that works. As long as there's a lot of people around believing the wrong thing, it's right, right? Because it makes us feel better. But Nicodemus is starting to go, ah, this Jesus is a real deal. John 19 come out of the darkness he's starting to question his own peers and in John 19 we see this last picture of Nicodemus he's taking part in the burial of Jesus later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus who had just been crucified and now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus but secretly because he feared the Jews with Pilate's permission he came and took the body away he was accompanied by Nicodemus the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, very costly. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. What a beautiful, beautiful picture Nicodemus went from darkness, he went to challenging his peers, and then somewhere along the way, Nicodemus got saved. Nicodemus is so in that he is burying Jesus, and he's putting his reputation and his money on the line. He is so thankful for who Christ is, and his faith has blossomed in such a way that he is giving of his very resources deeply to, to bury Jesus. He's identifying publicly with Christ. Revived in God. Revived in God. Coming to know Jesus. Being born again. And not only being born again, but publicly declaring and identifying with the risen Christ. At the River Church, that's what we're about. We want people to come to know Jesus, but we want people to come to know Jesus in such a way that they don't mind declaring who Christ is in their life among those who might not like it. Who are so thankful for what Christ has forgiven them of and set them free from and has the hope that he has given to them that they are willing at whatever cost to declare and to publicly praise Jesus. Amen? What about you?
Matthew 16, 26 says, What does it profit a man if he forfeits, if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Where are you with Jesus? And yet we also believe this, that therefore if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Person number two, David, King David. Ruler of Israel, defeater of Goliath, military hero, worshiper of God when he was young. He's known God all of his life. Uh, one in which in 1 Samuel it says, this is a man, God says, that is after my own heart, that has my very heart. That is a deeply passionate worshiper of the living God. One of the highest compliments in the whole Bible is bestowed upon David. But in the middle of his reign, in the middle of his power, the wheels fall off. And they fall off bad. He finds himself at home while he should be at war. He sees a beautiful woman. He lusts after her. He calls her to, to, to be with him. He sleeps with her. He gets her pregnant. And then he covers it up. And the way that he tries to cover it up is he has her husband killed. I don't think that we could script a worse story of sin than David's sin. I mean, when we actually read it and we just we thank God for David in the Psalms and it, what a, you know, just his heart and his passion for God, and we and we we still say that today, even knowing this story. But when we read that story, we go, man, that is a wicked, wicked series of events. He was completely off track. He fell, and he fell hard. Oftentimes in in these kind of stories, the crowd gets quiet. Two things happen. We all go, whew, well, I haven't committed adultery or killed anybody. I'm okay. Thank you, David, for taking, (laughs) taking the lead here. I'm a really good person compared to you. But really what happens is that we all start getting a little bit uncomfortable because we're all aware of our own sin, aren't we? And if we're not careful, we allow the work of that failure or the work of that sin, and it might even be a pattern of sin that you're living in right now. That's what even makes it more uncomfortable. just want you to know that I am not that prophetic. I don't know what's going on in your life. But God does. God does. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and God hates sin. And he also says that sin brings death in our life, so it destroys things in our life. So the spiritual reality, even though Jesus has saved us and there's grace upon grace in our life, the the reality is is that... uh, Do not we, the scripture says that we shouldn't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever we sow, that will we reap. That sin has a deadly reaping. So that's the ugly side of it. The awesome side of it is, is that God doesn't leave us in a place where our sins deserve. Amen? He doesn't leave us in a place of judgment. He doesn't leave us in a place of death if we respond rightly to him. And oftentimes he devises ways to rescue us, enter the next part of the story with David. So how does God rescue David? He sends a prophet. Oh, no. 
He sends somebody who can see what's going on, or maybe somebody who already knows what's going on in your life, and he confronts you. He might even just be doing it by the Holy Spirit right now. The prophetic word of God might be speaking to you right now. And you walked into the service and you thought, I just hope that I get to dance and sing today and just really receive the grace of Jesus Christ and love and encouragement. And oh, God's going to remind me of my sins. I don't like that. But he sends Nathans into our life or the Spirit of God. And he says, "Uh, hello, this area of life is not bringing life to you. As a matter of fact, it is rebellion, and it's bringing death to you and to other people. You need to repent. And guess what David did? He repented. He didn't repent right at first, but he ultimately repented. And he got right with God. And that's the beautiful thing about Jesus and about God, is that he's not one who likes our sin, He does not approve of sin. That's why Jesus Christ came to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven of the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. Sin is ugly, will always be ugly. It's rebellion, it's death, and it's destructive. Whether you're a believer or not, if you are operating in sin, it destroys people's lives. But God is also a God of grace. Amen? And when we say, God, I am wrong, as David said, I am wrong, God forgave David. Listen to David's prayer real quick. Just because it's such a beautiful prayer. Maybe you could pray a prayer like this, or maybe you could just say, yes, God, David's prayer. That's my prayer. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before you. Against you, you you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sometimes we don't repent because we don't call what we've done sin. It's part of our repentance is acknowledging it is wrong. So you are right in your verdict, God, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Repentance is not only being sorrow for our, sorry for our sin, but it's saying, God, I want to live a different way. Lord, my heart is wrong. I've done wrong. Would you please forgive me? You're justified in whatever you want to do with me. But God, I plead for your mercy. Would you cleanse me? Would you make me whole? And God, I want to walk with a new heart. The good thing is, is that we don't live in the Old Testament so that when we put our faith in Jesus, we have that forgiveness, don't we? We have that Spirit of God living in us which enables us to live holy even when we can't live holy. And Romans 8 says that we do not have to walk in condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death where we feel like that we have to keep on performing to be right. God says, no, you're free. You are free. You're free from the law. The power of sin has no hold on you anymore. 
You can walk in the freedom that Christ affords you. You do not have to sin anymore, and you do not have to walk in the condemnation when you do fail. So if you're here this morning and you have fallen, or you are falling, we at the River Church believe in being revived in God. And part of being revived in God is that which is dead coming back to life again in you. We might have some Davids in this room. Maybe it's little patterns. Maybe it's something huge. There's no difference to God. God wants to forgive no matter what. He wants to restore no matter what. He wants to breathe life and hope into you without condemnation no matter what. It just starts with you repenting and moving towards God. Lastly, Paul, continual revival. Paul not only had a dramatic conversion, and part of his conversion was he had been a persecutor of the Christians. He had been a part of seeing Christians killed and imprisoned. And then Jesus reveals himself to him as he's on his way to a city called Damascus, and he's blinded by God, and he turns his heart and his life over to Jesus, and he becomes not, not only now, not only is he not a persecutor of Christians anymore, but he becomes the leading voice of proclamation of Jesus and who he is throughout the world at that time, especially to those who were Gentiles, who were non-Jewish. He became an apostle to them. We know about Paul that he was devoted to Jesus. He was a worshiper of Jesus. He was thankful. He preached the gospel. Our sense is about Paul that once he came to know Jesus, he never had a time where he slid back from God. We don't know that because there's, it's, not, it's not told of us. But what we do see is somebody who, who lived passionately for God his whole life after he was born again. And I believe the things I just mentioned are reasons and ways that we can have continual revival. We see in Paul a devoted life to the word of God, into prayer, into being filled with the Holy Spirit continually and to operate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and to continue to proclaim Jesus. As Philemon says in verse 6, I pray that you may be active in sharing of your faith so that you may have a full understanding of everything you have that's good in Christ Jesus. That's who Paul is, but he also had trials. It wasn't like it was just he got saved and everything was hunky-dory. It says in 2 Corinthians 11, five times. I received, verse 24, from the Jews, the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've lived a dangerous life. I've lived a hard life, Paul is saying. Maybe some of us in this room are on a continual journey with Jesus, and you need to be encouraged. Keep praying. Keep loving God. Keep sharing Jesus. And keep on persevering through the trial. He goes on in 2 Corinthians 4 and says, But we have these treasures in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, 
but not destroyed. Therefore, verse 16, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on not what is seen, but what is on the unseen, or what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We're living in a battle. Amen? I don't, think, I, th- I don't think we're seeing it. We're living in a battle, amen? amen? We are living in a battle. Why are we in a battle? Because there's an enemy that hates you. Me? I'm so nice. That's why he hates you. Oh, here he goes with that devil talk. I only go with that devil talk because it's in the Bible. And because there's a devil and there's demons and there's sin, and there's selfishness, and there's death in this world. We're in a battle. We're in a battle that God has already won. Amen? Jesus already won it for you. So it doesn't have, that means that you don't have to be defeated. It doesn't mean you have to be overwhelmed. It doesn't mean you have to be condemned. It doesn't mean you have to be fearful. It just means that you need to be aware that what is unseen is more real than what is seen. When we were praying this morning over the service, Dennis um, said, I feel like that we, we need to be aware that what is seen is more real than what is unseen. He didn't know that was in my message. I said, when did you say that? I didn't hear it. But he said, I feel like that we need to be made aware that what is unseen is more real than what is seen. And that is true for your life. How do you persevere in a place where what is going on around you, you can't even see, is more challenging and more difficult than what you see? You have to be a person of prayer. You have to be a person who knows your living God. You have to be a person of thankfulness that's reminded day in and day out of what God has already done for you and what he's already spoken and what you know that he can do. You have to be a person who worships regularly. Charlie and I are laughing as, as, the, as the semester ramps up and as different things are going on and we're recognizing that we're embattled. Charlie has said, you know what, I've got to spend time with Jesus more than I used to. Now I'm, I'm adding a second time of the day for spending time with Jesus. I've been regularly spending time with Jesus for an hour or more every morning for the last however many years. He's got, he's got it calculated. You can ask, ask him the number of hours. I think he'll tell you how many hours he's been spending with Jesus. He says, I've got, I've got to get more time with Jesus. So he's adding a 5 o'clock shift. Whether you add a shift or you pray continually or you are aware of the presence of God, we've got to be daily responsive God. Revived in God. Revived for the first time. Revived in our sin. Brought back from dead to life again. Revived continually. We want to be people that are revived. Would you stand up with me? As the band comes up... I want to give an invitation. I truly believe that on those first two, or on all three of these points, there are people that are saying, that's where I'm at, and I need help. And so could I have my faith group leaders come forward? <clears throat> we had a lot of components in our, our service today, but it's really, this is a really important response time. I really believe it's kind of like a watershed moment for the beginning of the semester, beginning of the year, beginning of a new work that God is doing as we head into a new season as students as we head into the fall with as families and ramp up for the activities that are in front of us God is saying I want to revive you River Church and so if you are one of those people 
You're either a person who needs to ask more questions of God or you're ready to put your faith in Jesus or you're somebody who's saying, I, I want to be set free from the, from the pattern of sin or I want to recognize what, I want to confess what's going on and receive grace and forgiveness from the Lord or you're just saying, I'm in a fight or a struggle and I need perseverance. If that's you, I would just ask you to come forward. You can come forward. If you want somebody to pray for you, walk up to somebody. If you want to just kneel down before the Lord, you can do that. Um, But we want to respond this morning. So let's do that as the worship team leads out. You don't hesitate. Come down as as an act before the Lord. Say, God, I mean business. Let me read this, this one last scripture as we respond. Psalm 9, verse 13. Lord, have mercy on me. See how my enemies torment me. Snatch me back from the jaws of death. Save me so I can praise you publicly at Jerusalem's gates so I can rejoice that you have rescued me. Part of our act of response sometimes is a public response of declaration of what God has done or an act of of fervency. God, I want you to do something and I desperately am responding to you today. So as we begin to worship, if you're one of those people and you need to respond, come on forward, kneel down and pray or grab somebody by hand and we'll pray for you.
just to seek your face. We're gathered in one place, just to seek your face, just to seek your face. Glory, hallelujah, we are here for you. Glory, hallelujah, we are here for you.
we're solid in our faith, whether we're still searching. We know it's because of you that we are here this morning, Lord. So I ask that you would bless us this week, Lord, as we go forth. Uh, Would you speak to us? Would you keep prompting us that we would uh, desire to spend time with you, Lord? And we ask for these blessings in the name above all names, Jesus. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for being here this morning. God bless.
This is what you do when you come alive. 